0: Hi, I'm George Sekhmachov. This is Easton Target Archery Podcast number 187. And I've got a very special guest, an old friend of mine, one of my oldest friends in the sport of archery. Once archery was reintroduced in 1972, a lot of people were inspired to join the sport. Some of them had been in the sport before that, though. One of those people is a man who spent 42 years if I had to sum up his career, I'd say 42 years as the right-hand man of Jim Easton if Jim needed something special done. And that is somebody who many of you know, uh, if you've been involved in the sport of archery for any length of time, Don Rabska. Thanks for joining us from your home in Prescott, Arizona. Oh,
1: gosh, George, my pleasure. Happy to, happy to help and happy to talk to
0: you. Don, uh, your career is so, it spans so much It spans so much change in our sport. I scarcely know where to begin, but I think it would be interesting to start from the beginning when you were a collegiate archer and you had thoughts of working at Easton.
1: Well, yeah, I I was actually, I was uh, just out of college and I was working at a machine shop. and and, um, uh, Well, actually, um, I was at the Vegas uh, event, and uh, so how it all got started and how I got to work at Easton was I was shooting competition in uh, the, the Vegas tournament, and I was in fourth place, but I was still in college at that time. And uh, what happened was um, they had a different color scorecard for the collegiate archers, but I was still able to shoot in the senior division, um, in senior recurve division. So, um, after two days of competition, I was in fourth place and um, but I wasn't shooting on target one, so, and in fact, I wasn't shooting anywhere. <laughs> so I went to Joe Johnston, who was running the competition at the time, and uh, he was director. And I said, excuse me, sir, but um, my, my name's not listed. I'm not on my tar- or I'm not on any target. And he goes, well, you must have screwed up my uh, scorecard, and we'll have to kick you out of the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so I said, no sir, I filled out my card correctly, I signed it, I, everything was added up properly, it was checked and I turned in. And he says, it's impossible, if it wasn't in there, it's you screwed up somehow and you know, I'm gonna get, I'll kick you out of the tournament. I said, no sir, you will not kick me out of the tournament. I filled out everything correctly and I would like to be on my designated target that I earned that spot. And so we went back and forth, but I, I maintained, a, you know, very polite stature. But I dug my heels in, and uh, so he goes, "Oh damn it! Okay, well, come back in twenty minutes." <laughs> and uh, his, his girlfriend at the time, Erin, was just a sweetheart, and Joe, uh, so calm down now. And anyway, uh, so. I, Before uh, the 20 minutes was up, I heard uh, such-and-such move to such-and-such target over the loudspeaker. Such-and-such move to such-and-such target. So Joe had to move about 10 people, and I ended up getting on um, number one target. uh, Where you belonged. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, he said, yeah, we we found your scorecard. Yeah, but it was a different color, and so it got in the wrong pile. And I said, okay, no problem, but thank you so much for doing that. I really appreciate it. And uh, so we kind of just hit it off after that a little bit. And um, so I called him one time. I said, you know, I'm um, working in a machine shop, but uh, if I take a day off, I'd likely get fired. It wasn't a very nice place to work. And so Joe uh, came down on a Saturday, rode his motorcycle down, opened the co- opened up the uh, company for me, and uh, you know the entire plant, and gave me a personal tour. And wow. then he asked me on the on the tour, what am I gonna do, You know, what am I doing? And uh, I told him, he said, Do you like it? And I said, no, I hate it. And he goes, would you like to come and work here? <laughs> and I said, sure, what capacity? And he goes, I'll start you out manager trainee. And uh, that's, that's how it got started. So Joe, Joe was the one who hired me, and uh, he was my mentor for a long time.
0: This is um, What and, a classic yeah. Easton story, in my experience, <laughs> right? I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, from. Almost being kicked out of uh, the Vegas tournament to, to, to work in Eastern for forty-two years. Yeah, but yeah.
0: knowing Joe's personality, I'm I sure he I, I
1: just, I'm so blessed to have worked there.
0: Absolutely, both of us.
1: Amazing people.
0: You know, knowing Joe's personality, he probably appreciated somebody that would stand up to him uh, in a polite way, and I think that that probably, you know, first impressions, man. <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, because you know, I was wasn't about to give up, so. No. <laughs> but, Oh well, you know, maintain, be polite, uh, be respectful, but not going anywhere.
0: Oh well, you know, Don, I've known you so well over the years, I can completely picture the scene in my mind. You know, <laughs> even the look on your face, I can imagine. You know, <laughs> yeah, it
1: was, uh, you know, and that was, I mean, you know, God's been good to me, boy. I'll tell you, it was, it was so serendipitous that I fell into that
0: job. That Long journey from there to being special projects manager for Jim to at, taking time during the 84 Olympic Games, before the 84 Olympic Games, to, to work in uh, that archery competition as the archery manager and probably a whole bunch of other hats at that time. That journey culminated with you becoming vice president of the Easton Foundations. So over 42 years, um, you've done just about every kind of job that can be done at a high level at the company and um, that has taken you to many places and, and uh, many opportunities you spent many years working with FITA, and later World Archery uh, on yes. the technical committee and uh, advising different other committees like Target Archery and coaching committees um, coached many notable athletes uh, have done so much to advance the uh, profile of our sport uh, not the least with people like the actress, Gina Davis, who was your student, um, huge amount of publicity around her attempt to make the Olympic team, A nearly successful attempt, I should point out. And I think that uh, if there's anybody who's got more stories to tell, it's Don Rabska. Uh, what are some of the highlights for you, maybe chronologically from the standpoint of working at the company?
1: Oh, gosh, um, that's hard to put in order
0: and <laughs> it is, and I kind of, I kind of hit you, hit you from behind with that. So I'll, I'll let you gather your thoughts. Um, First time you were at the Olympic Games. How was that for a, uh, for well, a starter? that was
1: you know for eighty four Olympics, and that, you know obviously that was definitely a highlight of my career working with Jim because we took hiatus from, from Easton to go work for the LAOC, the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee. Yeah,
0: for a full year, in fact.
1: So for a full year, yeah, and we were, we were working, you um, know, we were still with the company and doing a lot of that work, too, so we were working very long hours, and then we, um, you know, like I said, we went on hiatus from the company period just to work to uh, do the Olympics, and so, you know, our test tournament was... Originally, it was supposed to be the, the nationals, um, the national championships, which we put on in 83. And then Mexico bailed out uh, six months before the world, Ch- uh, they were supposed to host the world championships. So we ended up taking that on too, and the Olympic Games. So,
0: at the last minute, you did the world championship in 1983 in Long Beach at the same venue that was used for the Olympic Games.
1: Exactly. So that became a wonderful tester, <laughs> or a second test term but, you know. But yeah, we were putting in you know, at least about 95 hours a week on average. So you know, it was a long haul, and we were out of it because we can get out of there till two and three in the morning. Um, but God, I would do it all over again.
0: Yeah, 95 hour a week uh, was average for that entire year, which is hard yeah. to wrap your mind around until you understand Jim's penchant for long hours and, and hard work. And
1: I, I had. I had an episode, actually, <laughs> I had gotten so, so exhausted and I hadn't much, had much sleep at all um, during the World Championships, I could function, but I, I couldn't speak very well. <laughs> so one of my dear friends came with his girlfriend, and uh, he introduced her, and I, 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 w- I wanted to say, nice to meet you, and all that came out of my mouth was nice to meet you. <laughs> and, and I just smiled, shook my head, and walked away. <laughs> it was yeah, so, it I was can picture so it. embarrassed, but I, I, could, I couldn't talk. I mean, it was, I was so
0: exhausted. You know, the uh, archery competition was a success, but I know that uh, your point of pride for the Games was the first time, it was the first time the Olympic Games actually made money, in no small part to the business acumen. Of people like Jim Easton and, of course, Peter Uburoth, who, yeah. who ran the games, and It was
1: kind of like a business, and it, it was profitable, and it was, you know, it was well attended, and it was just a great games. Um, it, it, just a quick trivia uh, point, you know, because uh, previous games had lost so much money, uh, Moscow and uh, Montreal, they lost billions of dollars. Yeah, particularly Montreal. One so host it. the only big countries
0: were Tehran, Iran,
1: and Los Angeles. Wow. only two big countries.
0: And if you look at your history, folks, uh, Tehran, you know, during that time, still the the time of the Shah, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Oh, sorry, let me back up. No, that was after the fall of the Shah. So not too many people... Oh, that's
1: right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Not too many people were keen on going to Tehran during that time frame. Not so much. And I think that uh, as a result, L.A. kind of, I mean, you might say got stuck with, maybe arguably saved the modern Olympic Games uh, in its current structure. Yeah, you can you consider that you
1: know, just that one under big com- country. Um, so, yeah, Peter and people like Jim and a lot of good business people really turned the Olympics around and, and literally, I think, uh, saved it. Yeah. To the games, absolutely.
0: During that time, of course, uh, Jim had to basically turn the company over to some of his uh, management staff uh, because of the need for keeping Easton running while Jim was devoting 100%. And knowing Jim, he probably was still spending whatever few hours were still available to him not sleeping to at least checking up on what was happening at the company.
1: Yes, Absolutely. Jim was the hardest working man I've ever known in my life. Just amazing, amazing, amazing
0: man. But, you know, also capable of making anybody working with him um, want to emulate that same behavior. I remember feeling guilty. If I would leave at, say, 10 o'clock at night and I'd walk across the street to get my car and I could look up and I could see Jim's corner office in the corporate building and if the lights were on... I, I, I tell you what, I felt compelled to go back inside and work some more until he left.
1: <laughs> you, you and me both, brother.
0: <laughs> exactly. We've had this conversation you know, many times.
1: You know, Still, such an incredible work ethic in, in his people and loyalty. Yeah, yeah. An amazing,
0: amazing man. Yeah, I, I've noticed Greg does the same thing now today. And he's I, I, I'm not saying that Greg, you know, is is making his people work till three in the morning, but. Uh, by the way, that's the, uh, another point. Nobody was made to work till 3 in the morning. We just no, liked to. Absolutely.
1: Is that a loyalty and commitment? Yeah. Um, to Jim?
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. And, you know, I think Greg has engendered the same thing in many of his people. It's, it's interesting to see. I agree.
1: His, his people are very loyal. It's, it's wonderful to see it.
0: Yeah. The, the fascinating aspect of this, of course, is if you're going to talk about someone who's all in for the Olympic movement, and specifically for archery. Uh, The Easton family, of course, has been, you know, you cannot name anyone as an entity that has done more for our sport. And that's what drew me to work for them um, when I was talking to you about working for Easton back in the late 80s. And that's what drew you to work for them as well.
1: Well, it just seemed like a really cool place to work. (laughs) And it was. I was an archery geek to begin with, <laughs> so, you know, I got in, I've got. i been so blessed. I got to travel around the world, Did seminars in 43 countries, most of those countries I was back to multiple times, uh, got to coach around the world, and I got to shoot around the world, so yeah. I got paper, too, so really yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: good. Yeah, and uh, thanks to you, I have a similar story to tell, you know? <laughs> We have uh, so many things, but you know, another one of the outstanding items, of course, is the subject of our last podcast, which uh, partly was the fact that, you know, Easton built the arrow that was used to shoot a shot that was maybe one that will still be in even a thousand years, one people still can look back upon. The shot of Antonio Raboyo to light the Olympic cauldron, and you had a critical role in making that happen. Can you tell us when you first got the uh, word that that was something being considered and what you had to do to contribute to making that actually happen?
1: Sure. Um, Well, Osvaldo Garcia, who was the um, competition director for archery for the 92 games... Big
0: archery guy in Spain, yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, no, I was just saying, Osvaldo Garcia was a a big archery guy in Spain, of course. He wasn't just some bureaucrat that they threw into archery. He was a a serious dedicated archer and archery dealer.
1: Yes, and just a wonderful man. Yes. Uh, Yeah, anyway, um, so, you know, he he contacted us and in secrecy and, uh, you know, asked us to remain remain totally confidential about this, uh, what they were planning to do. And he started talking to us about, you know, Flaming Arrow. So being a young pyromaniac when I was piled in, um, making my own fireworks and, cooking potassium nitrate and other chemicals uh so, i
0: you know I, and more critically don you can still count to 10 without having to take your shoes off so <laughs> What's that, you can you can still count to 10 on all your fingers so you were successful <laughs> at it digit. that's so cool <laughs> i didn't blow anything
1: up but uh yeah so uh, you know I, I jumped at the chance and um anyway we uh, oh and by the way Oswaldo was a uh, an ultimate wine aficionado oh yeah i I, I digress but the guy was amazing anyway so yeah i um i I figured okay I, i had to figure out the you know the fire pot that was the big thing and so i did a bit of an experimenting and i finally came up with um you know petrol paste uh basically gasoline snowflakes and and making a paste because i didn't want any um something that was too liquid to run down the shaft when it got elevated to to launch
0: don let's not make too fine a point of it you made it from napalm (laughs) basically
1: okay i didn't want to say the word but yes (laughs) so that's that's what I did, and then I, I wanted something, you know, for a constant igniter, and so I used quadruple lot steel wool for that, so it, it wouldn't go out. Yeah. And um, so, I, um, you know, at first I, I made a pod and I put it on the arrow, and you know, the, because of the slick surface of an aluminum arrow, um, it, that, it just slid too easy even if I wired it. So, I took that off. I put down a piece of double stick tape wrapped on. Um, fresh gauze, and then put the paste on that, Wrap that in there, and then uh, wrapped in the, the quadruple-ot steel wool, and uh, that worked pretty darn good, because it wouldn't go out, but it was was really kind of, um, uh, it wasn't exciting on the flame, because, you know, it, they hit the target, and it would still stay lit, but when it was flying, you just didn't see a lot of flame, because yeah. it was almost pushed it, putting it out, you know, at the same time, so then I came up, okay, I was going to need a cone, something to... Know, push air away from the flame and I made one out of a wooden real quick just to see if it worked, worked really well. So then I made another one out of a uh, shim stock and uh, used the RPS insert and a uh, field point and be able to attach it that way. And that worked just dandy. And so I, I, I did, you know, while I was experimenting, I was shooting into my garage. Well, I had compressed cardboard. You know, I had a hose at the ready, just just so you know. But so Judy comes out of the house and uh, what the hell are you doing? So, <laughs> I said, oh, I'm just uh, kind of working on flaming arrowhead, and uh, I, I put I put my bale out because I did set it on fire briefly. Yeah. Really. <laughs> and uh, so, but you know, that's that's kind of how it came along. and so we ended up making the shafts obviously for that too, and they were 47 inch long, 24 19 so you figure that shaft alone probably weighed somewhere between 650 and 700 grains and then the cone that um, they manufactured had to weigh over a thousand grains and then the fire pod too said you're probably shooting an arrow that's 2500 grain <laughs> arrow that uh, uh, that uh, antonio had to launch
0: out of a 70 pound hunting bow no less
1: exactly out of a 70 pound hunting bow yeah and it just had a little pin there and uh, and the only thing he had to aim at was a, a teeny little light way up on a tower, and that was his aiming point,
0: yeah. and he uh, got, you know, I like call him Mr. Ice, Ice
1: running through his veins, I'll tell you. Yeah, but Gosh, as, as, you know, as Juan Carlos... You know, Carlos, a million people watching, and you know, you get one shot at it, but don't worry,
0: no stress. <laughs> it, it turns out, as Juan Carlos told us uh, in our previous podcast, that he'd actually, Antonio Roboyo had actually undergone considerable, and remember, Antonio Raboyo is a Paralympian. He'd yes, undergone exactly. considerable uh, mental... Training, You know, he he did a full six-month, you know, every single day for hours a day, visualizing and, you know, using other mental management tools to to get ready for that shot. And then, as Juan Carlos tells us, he didn't actually know that he was going to be able to do it until an hour before the shot because of the rivalry between Barcelona and Madrid. You know, Catalonia versus, yeah, uh, yeah. and it was just one of those uh, terrible situations that, you know, just between you and me was kind of common at the Barcelona Games.
1: Yeah, yeah sure was. <laughs> yeah, they interviewed, I think, over 100 archers, um, you know, for psychological profile and so forth. And, uh, yeah, and Antonio, he, he came out on that. And then he had to do even more mental training just to be able to pull that off. So, yeah, yeah ama- amazing guy. Just a great guy. Yeah, they one of the one time. And just, just a sweetheart.
0: Yeah, we had him in Van Nuys um, to visit the factory after the uh, right. Barcelona Games. and. Just a tremendous uh, person, just, just a wonderful guy. And sure. still, you know, still looking good today. Um, less hair, but he's got a magnificent beard. and <laughs> You can you can catch some of the interviews with him on, I think the IOC has put up a couple of uh, uh, videos. So if you go to the uh, olympics.com uh, website, you can dig around and you can find some of those. It is uh, just a remarkable man with a remarkable story. And I will say this, um, The shot, when you watch the video, any archer can imagine the tension, can imagine the feeling. Anybody who's ever had to shoot for high stakes knows what that feeling is, and it was probably magnified by a thousand. So thank goodness it worked out and that he had the mental fortitude to make that happen because, quite frankly, you know, he's standing there in front of all those spectators. We had 65,000 spectators, 3 billion estimated watching this thing live on TV. And uh, and the flame is starting to drip toward his hands.
1: Yeah, well, that's one thing I wanted to mention was that you know they didn't use the same components uh, <laughs> because the, they they had it they had a little bucket there I guess and and um, th- where they kept you know uh, the fluid on the on the pod, but it was very liquid and so when he raised that that arrow up and it was flaming that flame was now running down toward his hands. So yeah, you can see it on the video. It was from his hand before he launched. <laughs> Was, well,
0: you might think of that as sort of a clicker.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's very, a visual clicker. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, a, and a tactile one, too.
1: <laughs> it's, it's very tactile.
0: Okay, it's burning. Let go. Yeah. I, uh, so, you know, the, uh, the shot of the arrow from the side shows the trajectory, which was intentional to go over the cauldron. You didn't want it hitting the cauldron. And in particular, he didn't want it hitting the base of the cauldron because it would end up in the seats. And Juan Carlos told us, of course, uh, you know, he, he'd go to that stadium to practice once in a while. And and there were burned seats up there from previous practice <laughs> sessions. Oh, it's amazing. I didn't know that one. You know, what's more amazing is they actually had people in those seats during the actual shot. So, uh, yes. The health and safety regulations for the London Olympic Games <laughs> compared to compared to what they had in Barcelona. <laughs> you, you, yeah. I, I don't know if you remember all the all the paperwork for the London Olympic Games and the health and safety regulations, but let's yeah. just say you couldn't you, you couldn't uh, nah, you better make sure your shoes were tied for London. That's for
1: sure. Man, was a, yeah, I remember filling out that stuff.
0: Yeah. Anyway. It, it got a favorite uh, Olympics done? Do you have a favorite?
1: A favorite Olympics?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh gosh. Uh, been to nine. Um, well, of course, you know that was a, a pinnacle of, uh, of an Olympic Olympic experience for the '92 games, and by far the best uh, cauldron light lit, uh, lighting ever. I mean, holy cow, it was
0: fantastic. Yeah, but I wouldn't I wouldn't call it one of I wouldn't call it a favorite just because of the things like. People don't know this, Don, but they think, "Oh, Don Rabska gets to go to the Olympic Games." They stuck you in a in a non air conditioned room in Barcelona in September in in July. Yeah. With no air conditioning.
1: Yeah, it was it was not a, a, a good um, hotel room, put it that way. No windows either. Yeah. And <laughs> and I broke out in such a bad rash at my wrists and my my elbows. I had to go hunt down some of my archery doctor friends and. Your skin was peeling off. Oh God, it was horrible. I was I was so miserable.
0: <laughs> and I, I I remember I remember you and I lining up for lunch one day. You know we were we were classified as volunteers even though we were actually staff. And you know we're walking in this long line to gr- to grab lunch. You got a plate of something that looked for all the world like a plate of alpo. Do you remember?
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you had better food. We after a couple of days of that, we all started going to the bar down the. Uh, down oh, the gosh, uh, yeah, I
1: remember going to that. oh yes yeah yeah the, gazpacho. Going to the bar. no that stuff was horrid that you couldn't eat that stuff
0: no but it was so much better because we were able to go and get tapas and i mean the yeah. food the food That's in great. barcelona is so good yeah, absolutely but, but not if you're an olympic volunteer
1: <laughs> and i remember we were celebrating and, and uh, we, we had some bit of sangria as well
0: um, at the end farms. yes uh, yeah, a bit. Uh, sangria is very dangerous. It's, it's uh, you're drinking it and it's refreshing and it's cool and, yeah. you know, it's it's 33 degrees centigrade and you're drinking this sangria and suddenly a little guy comes up behind you with a tin hammer and whacks you on the back of the head and you have no idea. Sure. I remember the first time I tried to stand up. I mean, I didn't feel intoxicated, but when I tried to stand up, I realized, ah, <laughs> my equilibrium's off a bit. I remember,
1: I, I think I'll sit here for a bit.
0: Yeah. That might have been exactly what I did. I think I sat straight down. And we're there at the table with uh, Greg and Jim and um, Lynn Easton, Jim's uh, daughter, Greg's sister, and uh, her husband. And uh, I just remember a couple of things, (laughs) because much of it's been lost to whatever alcohol does to you. But uh, I remember Jim looking at me really amused, you know, because i don't think i'd ever gotten drunk in front of him before
1: yeah and that had, it was great yeah
0: exactly that <laughs> it's like ah you didn't know any better did you now you've learned of course jim yeah. never got drunk sure. <laughs> yeah it was just a fantastic event but you know uh as far as favorite olympic games go i, I gotta give it to london for me personally
1: London, London was great. It was, uh, what an iconic venue that was! Uh, two thousand and four to Echo Stadium, and this oh, yeah. was in Athens was fantastic.
0: Fantastic venue, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Fantastic. But
0: another three weeks, another three weeks in a non-air conditioned space was no fun in August yeah, in, in yes. Greece.
1: And uh, also us working till two in the morning. Oh yeah. To keep it together because uh, <laughs> that's a great story. So I, I come out on the, on the field, and Jim's there. You know, I just just arrived. I just gotten off the plane, come out to the field, and. And uh, Jim walks up to me and says, hey, Don, I got, I have some good news and some bad news. I said, well, what's that? He says, well, the good news is the venue will be ready in two weeks. The bad news is we start in three days. <laughs> so, yeah, and that was, uh, boy, was it a hustle. We were working until, you know, like I said, two in the morning every those three nights uh, just to get the venue ready for competition.
0: Well, you remember you and I were standing on the field of play, and um, we both turned around at the same time to see Jim Easton, a man in his 60s, a member of the IOC, president of World Archery at the time, FITA, moving a huge piece of equipment by himself. Remember?
1: Oh, yeah, you know, Jim is an amazing guy. He would, you know, he'd pick up a broom and sweep if he needed to. Absolutely. you know, I mean, he'd roll up his sleeves and dive into any piece of equipment that was in the company, and he knew every piece of equipment that was in there, and he could work on every single piece of equipment. I mean, he's a phenomenal brain. Holy cow, he's smart. Yeah, and, but, uh, but... Yeah, and Jim is just a get-it-done guy, and he just, he just jumps right in. He doesn't delegate. He, you know, he'll delegate, okay, you guys need to get this done. I'm going to do this, and, you know, but it was... But, yeah, he'd always roll up the sleeves, take his jacket off, roll up the sleeves, take his tie off, and off
0: you go. Yeah, and it wasn't a show. I mean, it was just his way. It was not. It, leading by example was certainly the result, but maybe Absolute. not the intent. He just wanted to get it done. And I'll just never forget him lifting that panel, um, you know, and we, you and I both sprinted over there to try to help out. There were. People just standing around watching. It was remarkable. Yeah,
1: talking and watching It was amazing. How, you know, they didn't have video cameras at the time where they would have been filming.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, and, you know, uh, at the time. I know, you remember
1: '84 Olympics. You know, we were we, those those big uh, scoreboards. I mean, they looked like little condos. They were so huge. Yeah. Because we didn't have electronics at that that time that could do that uh, type yeah, of. Yeah, everything thing. was manual, so, right? Yeah, it was dark. He's up on top of one of these things, and they're about I don't know. 20 feet off the ground, he's sitting on a 6x6B six six pounded nails, <laughs> and it was dark. We, we couldn't hardly see anything. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And, and there are dozens of stories like that just from our personal observation. I remember Victoria World Championship, 1997, and, the you know, there was a results system that was a networked computer system when a really early attempt did not work. I mean, it was just a disaster. Jim and Phyllis and you and I and a couple other people up till 3 in the morning manually yep. redoing the scorecards. Yep. But Jim was right there with his sleeves rolled up and around, you know, I think maybe about 11 o'clock at night, he's like, anybody else hungry? And we all look at each other like, really? Jim's hungry? Because Jim was never hungry. <laughs> and We'd be in meetings and we'd be starving and Jim would just power on through because... Yeah. Here's the secret of Jim Easton: uh, Grape nuts, folks. If you if you want to get through lunch without eating anything, grape nuts in the morning. <laughs>
1: That's right. He always had his grape nuts.
0: Well, unfortunately, the fact that he had his grape nuts meant the rest of us generally went hungry until about two in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, But
1: no, work is more important.
0: Yeah, it was. But the uh, the the <laughs> remarkable thing was, you know, uh, here it is. It's eleven o'clock at night. Jim orders wontons. For the whole crew you know and uh yeah. he, he nobody knew that he liked well you probably knew but I didn't he enjoyed wontons <laughs> I thought that was pretty 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 funny you know but uh yeah it was it was one of many uh of those lead from the front kind of you know situations that uh yeah. and it, it ultimately saved our sport that's what a lot of people don't realize those changes the, and the amount of pushback he was getting back in 91 when he first proposed this stuff was epic people were right. people were uh, wanting to burn him at the stake for oh, making yeah. you know remember the,
1: the guy in England who had curly veins yeah
0: um, yeah we, articles he, we will not speak about this person i know who you're talking uh, about no i'm not going to mention his name uh,
1: I was so angry. Ugh, still am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it literally saved the sport and, uh, in the Olympic Games, period. I mean, we were on the chopping block, and 92 turned everything around because of the new format. Uh, yeah, totally. And that's, all, again, all Jim and uh, Peter Diamond from NBC Sports. Yeah,
0: uh, Vice President of Programming at the time. That. So, Don, as you know, uh, there is that bid to get compound archery into the... Los Angeles Olympic Games. And it's it's evoking all the same sort of comments that we used to see back in 92. Of course, we didn't have social media back then, but yeah, people right. were still not shy about sharing their opinions any more than they are today. It was just, it's well, easier now for, for one person on a keyboard to express their opinion to millions of people, ill-advised as it may be. And... Uh, we're seeing some of that same thing, but you know what? You know what's kind of cool? We are seeing an overwhelmingly positive response from the archery community and outside archery to this oh, well, uh, initiative. Have
1: the trolls, but uh, yeah, that's fantastic that we're getting a positive response. Though, so it's probably again the old eighty twenty rule, or you know ninety ten. So
0: yeah, or in this case maybe ninety nine one, whatever. Oh, know. that's even
1: better. Sounds
0: good. Yeah, but you know, it it is a remarkable. Um, a remarkable evolution and um for those few people you know the majority of our listeners are in california so i'm gonna bet that some of our listeners remember carl ratty our mutual friend carl ratty one of the hardest working guys in our sport to promote archery but hated compound <laughs> <laughs> yeah he wasn't a very big fan of
1: uh, compound bow.
0: but I, I think even carl would agree that this is a good initiative to bring indoor archery to the olympic games and uh so, hoping for the best on that, and uh, it, it remains to be seen, but I think that uh, it's a huge opportunity. Arguably, it's the biggest thing in archery since archery came back to the Olympic Games in 1972, which takes us to another interesting topic. 50 years well, since great. John that's Williams that's and Doreen Wilbur. I mean, it's been years
1: and years in the works. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 50 years since John Williams and Doreen Wilbur. I know you're very close to John Williams. I can't mm-hmm. believe it's been that long um, since they won those gold medals in Munich. But there you have it. Uh, in the month of September of this year, 50th yeah. anniversary of those Olympic Games.
1: Yeah, thanks for reminding me. I appreciate
0: that. <laughs> I share your pain. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm going back to 84 and how many years that's been. Holy cow. Yeah, it's, yeah that's uh, 30, uh, 38 years. So, you know, yeah. I, I look at that and I go, well, okay perspective right that's the one thing that our longevity in the sport has brought us is perspective and i think that we recognize that this change that's potentially coming up uh you know in the future is going to be looked back upon as another turning point another positive one for our sport just as what jim did Absolutely. yeah you know
1: to be able to add another discipline in the games is huge I mean, yeah people don't realize how big a deal that is
0: Again, for people who don't know, there was a tremendous amount of pushback against modernizing our Olympic round, and oh, yeah. and today, okay. people scream if they can't get a live feed. You know, it's, it's really great when you consider what the round was like before. That's the thing that a lot of people today, just getting into the sport or have only been in the sport for a few years, just don't get. Yeah. Watching a line right. of 200 people shoot arrows without having any idea of what's happening even between ends, you know, I think updates. Yeah, the,
1: the only exciting thing is when the scoreboard changed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that's, that's all you got to see. And that
0: didn't happen every end uh, in many events.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: You know, you might get to a half before they'd update it, you know, or a break. It was
1: not a spectator sport at that time. Not even a
0: little bit. Now. Everybody had to wear white, you know, it looked like a big bunch of bakers up there on the line. And, you know, uh, today things are so much better that, if you were to go back and show how much better it is today to those naysayers back in 1991, I think that the outcome would have been different from the standpoint of some of the negative comments at the time. Absolutely.
1: Without a doubt.
0: Vindication is a good thing. Well, Don, I will tell you that uh, we've just scratched the surface. There's so much more to talk about. I, uh, I'm going to ask you for one more, if, if you can dredge up one more fun thing that uh, you associate with the Olympic Games and your experience in those games um, to close out this particular show. But, you know, <laughs> that's two drops out of a 55-gallon drum.
1: Geez, <laughs> I don't even know where to start, George. I've had so many great experiences. I've been absolutely so blessed in my life. Uh, gosh, I, I wouldn't really even know where to start. Um, golly. Uh... Okay, I'm in a blank right now.
0: You can blank because I can edit.
1: (laughs) I mean, I had so many great moments, I really can't just pick one out right off the top of my head at the moment. Um, You know, it was golly. Let me, let me, let me. Well, you know, um, fun things like uh, I got, you know, I got to um, give Prince Albert of Monaco an archery lesson. Uh, The Prince of Orange, who's now King, I get to give him an archery lesson. I mean, I met, you know, kings and queens and dukes and duchesses and princes. And it's just been an amazing, amazing run. I'll tell you, I've had such a great, great time in this sport. And I've been so fortunate.
0: And the other thing you've done, Don, you know, of course, giving all credit to Jim for making it possible for both of us to be able to do the things we've done in our sport. Exactly. One thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is just how many archers you've helped over the years.
1: It's been my pleasure, and you know, it doesn't, I don't have any borders when it comes to archery. I will help anybody, and, and it's, fortunately, you know, for my many years working in the equipment repair booth and doing other jobs at the uh, at various Olympic games, you know, the archers came. to Trust me, and it didn't matter what country it was, they'd they run to me and for you know, Don, I need your help. Okay, what do you want? What do you need?
0: Well, you know, one lesson you taught me, Don, and I, and I still apply this lesson today. The lesson you taught me was it doesn't matter if somebody is shooting an Eastern arrow. It doesn't matter if they're shooting something other than a Hoyt bow. It doesn't matter if they come from a country whose political philosophy you disagree with. It doesn't matter if they're an archer. And you'll do whatever I've seen you do, whatever it took to help people who are in direct competition with Easton. You know, uh, athletes whose, whose performance would have been negative to Easton's publicity, that sort of thing. You did everything to help them that you'd do to help anybody else, and at the end of the day, you were supported in doing that by Jim Eason because his philosophy was: number one, is it is it an archer who needs help? Mm-mm. The question yeah. of what they were shooting and what they were doing never came up.
1: No, it didn't matter.
0: And I think that that philosophy is one you know that I apply because you taught it to me, and you know even if an athlete were were. Uh, leaving the company for a different brand because they got a a big contract from somebody, we still, you still, gave them every benefit that you could in the context of of their uh, archery success. And I think that that speaks volumes for the motivation.
1: Well, you and I just wanted them to know what they missed if they left
0: the, you know, from Yeah, there was some of that.
1: <laughs> shooting our equipment.
0: There was some of that, but, you know, the, the attitude of... Just kidding. Yeah. No, I'm, me too. But, you know, the attitude of, of, hey, you know what? Never burn a bridge because you never know when that person might need help and might want to come back.
1: Exactly. Why, why burn bridges? You know, it's all family. I mean, they're archers, they're
0: family. Yeah, you might disagree with a family member. One of them might... Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to bleep that word out so that we don't have any political <laughs> stuff here. But uh, but at the end of the day, uh, there's still family. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Don, I, I I will tell you, I'll take this opportunity to tell you once again. I, I know I've told you before in person, but let me tell it to our hundreds of thousands of podcast downloaders. Uh, if it weren't for you, I would not have been in the Easton Company in my life. would have taken a very different turn. So thank you for everything in the... Uh, the faith that you had in me back when you introduced me to Jim Easton and encouraged him to give me a shot as an engineer. Thank you for that.
1: My pleasure, George. It's been a good run.
0: Well, Don, as I said before, there's still a ton to tell in the Don Rabska story, so we'll have another Easton podcast with you pretty soon to talk about a few more historical items. I, I really want to dig into the development of Carbon Arrows with you back in 1982. Sure. Because I know you had an integral role in that. I think a lot of people would like to know the history of that. And uh, so we're going to do a history podcast on that specific topic coming up soon. Okay. All right, Don. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, George.
1: Talk to you soon.